You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 2nd of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show... I never have leaked anything from the National Security Council, nor would I ever leak anything from the National Security Council. Britain's Defence Minister is sacked over claims he leaked the details of a high-level meeting of the National Security Council. Is it time to call in the police? Dozens of people are arrested in Kazakhstan during demonstrations against the lack of choice in elections to replace President Nursultan Nazarbayev. My guests Michael Binion and Ben Ozog will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the US Attorney General refuses to appear before the House of Representatives over his handling of Robert Mueller's report into allegations of collusion between Russia and President Trump. All that plus, Sweden took the honours in 2018 but can Germany snatch the crown at this year's European Tram Driver Championship? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. And my guest today are Michael Binion, who's the Foreign Affairs Specialist for the Times of London, and Benno Zog, who's a researcher at the Centre for Security Studies at ETH Zurich. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Now, Gavin Williamson, Britain's former defence minister, has strenuously denied leaking details of a high-level meeting of Britain's National Security Council. Prime Minister Theresa May sacked him on Wednesday for allegedly revealing to a newspaper plans to allow the Chinese telecoms firm Huawei to help the UK build its 5G network. Now, though she's been trying to draw a line under the matter, opposition MPs are refusing to let go. They're calling for a police inquiry, which would give Mr Williamson the chance to clear his name, whilst establishing whether there was a breach of the Official Secrets Act. So, Michael Binion, Theresa May is trying to maintain this business-as-usual atmosphere, but do you think that eventually she's going to have to cave in and call in the police? She's going to have to do something, because at the moment it sounds ridiculous that she's made this rather dramatic decision to sack a very senior cabinet minister. He's clearly uh, said he didn't do what she's, he's accused of, namely leaking secrets. And uh, she said, well, that's it. We're, we're not going to investigate further. Now, there are only three possibilities. Either he is telling an outright lie, and he did do it, or he uh, simply is playing with words, and he gave a few hints to some journalist, and he sort of nodded and winked, didn't actually do anything except confirm the story they had, or the investigation has got it wrong, and he didn't do it. Uh, and I think uh, leaving it in that rather unsatisfactory state is very bad for morale, it's bad for the cabinet. Um, he's obviously not going to go quietly. So in the end, I think there will have to be some sort of investigation, certainly by some sort of outside body. Mm, and, and, and Bello, let's pick up on this point about the, the nod and the wink that Michael's referred to, because Gavin Williamson says he was tried by, in his words, a kangaroo point. And you do get the feeling that he has a bit of a point here because there was no formal inquiry, as we've established. And even though he's admitted talking to the media, in this case, the Daily Telegraph, which published the story, that does not conclusively prove that he leaked it. 
Exactly. We're really confronted with very little established facts at this stage. We have very strong allegations from Theresa May, who basically says that she has she's lost trust in her defence minister and sacked him accordingly. Um, but at the same time, we don't really know what happened. Are we talking about a small quote that he may have, without actually deliberately leaking it to someone he may have dropped somewhere and somebody may have overheard it or is it some something way more serious that would fully warrant this reaction but in any way we would need some kind of investigation to establish the facts that we should base our judgment on because otherwise um, we may just follow this these few lines by Theresa May without really knowing what this is about and the whole story is obviously part of a larger issue about the role of Huawei, um, about the role of Huawei in setting up 5G networks, whether they work for the Chinese government in some way or other. So we certainly need to establish more facts here. Mm. Uh, Michael, even if Gavin Williamson wasn't behind the leak, it doesn't look good because if it did, in fact, come out of his department. So does that make him look like an incompetent liability who simply lost control of the people he worked with, that they felt that they could actually talk about this. It could mean that indeed. Uh, It could also mean that he uh, certainly doesn't have the confidence of the Prime Minister for all sorts of other reasons, and namely that he's not been a very good Defence Secretary right from the very beginning. Uh, And he has made a number of statements that have raised eyebrows. Right at the start, he told the Russians to shut up and go away, which is not a very diplomatic thing to say. And it sounded very infantile as well, actually. It sounded just (laughs) silly, just plain (laughs) foolish. Uh, He doesn't seem to have a very firm grasp of military affairs. Uh, He's very given to political manoeuvring. He seems to know more about political manoeuvres than military manoeuvres. And he uh, doesn't seem to be a person who commands the respect of those that a Defence Secretary needs to uh, have authority over. So even if he didn't himself actually leak it, the the Prime Minister is perfectly entitled, if she doesn't like someone in her cabinet, to say, I don't think you should be in my cabinet any longer and get rid of him. Right, but at the same time, given all these faux pas with which he's been associated, Beno, you do have to wonder, well, why did Theresa May appoint him in the first place? Because there were questions at the time about elevating him to this job. There were people who thought that he simply wasn't ready for it because he was too young. And they had serious doubts about his capabilities. He was rather unkindly nicknamed Private Sergeant Pike or Private Pike, a character in the comedy Dad's Army, hapless, wet behind the ears and a bit of a mummy's boy. One does really wonder about that, and given defence ministry is such a prestigious position as well, so usually somebody with with very long experience is mm. appointed in that ex-soldier. kind of position, or an ex-soldier. Yeah, that's that's even the usual case in in most countries. So one wonders about that. But no matter what, no matter the reasons why he was hired in the first place, if she deemed it incompetent after a while, this is not really the way to to sack him. I mean, even though we are by now almost used to losing ministers of the cabinet every so often, like I, I woke up to this, this piece of news and it was, it was the same sensation. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it too. Oh, Trump tweeted another outrageous thing. <laughs> it's like, oh, Britain's lost another minister. Um, we're almost surely used you're to not that. comparing Theresa May to Donald Trump. Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit bold, I admit. <laughs> no, but it certainly doesn't shed a good light on about, uh, about the level of professionalism in the government. And if Theresa May says she lost trust for whatever reasons exactly um, in her defence minister, one can also wonder like whether the, the British people have 
remaining trust in this government at all, given this is only the latest uh, of several kinds of, of such infighting or whatever we need to call it. Mm. And, and Michael, I mean, let, let's take a look at, at the official the, the official Secrets Act itself, because it does have a rather chequered history in this country. But it does state that an offence may have been committed if the disclosure is damaging and done without lawful authority. So we know that this leak was not sanctioned from the highest levels. But in terms of the damage... Has Britain really been damaged because of that revelation that it may be slipping into bed with Huawei? I wouldn't say that particular revelation is damaging. No, it does raise big questions over our relations with the Americans as they put a lot of pressure on Downing Street not to allow Huawei to take part in this 5G uh, contract. But the point of it is that the National Security Council is meant to be the most secret, confidential and absolutely uh, watertight department where the government can discuss matters of national security without any chance that things will be said that are not authorised. Now, this is the most obvious leak uh, from a very high-powered organisation. It does, uh, on its very face of it, uh, break the Official Secrets Act, and that is a crime, and therefore that should perhaps be uh, um, uh, investigated, which is what the Labour Party is saying. They're saying, well, if this is a crime, the police have to be brought in. Mm. And I think it is because uh, it is such a senior body and such uh, a confidential body that they couldn't just say, well, it doesn't matter, even if what they're talking about isn't really a life or death issue for Britain's security. Yeah, because the point, Beno, the, the opposition has been making is that by not bringing in the police, there is this risk of double standards because civil servants have been prosecuted for breaking the Official Secrets Act. Sarah Tisdall springs to mind. She actually um, photocopied some very sensitive material which was which went to the Guardian newspaper. We're going right back now to about 1989. But she was jailed. If a civil servant had um, leaked this, this uh, meeting... They themselves would probably face prosecution, but a minister or the next minister is somehow going to be shielded. That doesn't sit very well, does it? It sure doesn't. And I think it's very important to make a point here that there is no immunity for ministers or higher officials as opposed to lower officials. And Theresa May, if she's really sincere with her accusation and really thinks that it is based on facts and it was indeed the defence minister who leaked this information, Regardless of how important it is, it is, as Michael said, about this um, this status that comes with the National Security Council um, and that no information whatsoever should be leaked. So, if May is serious, she should allow an investigation, police or whatever body, to look into that the same way it would be treated were it somebody else who committed that alleged crime in the end. So um, as long as she she does not allow that, it's looking pretty bad. OK, final word on this, Michael, because look, let's assume that some sort of an inquiry does happen and Gavin Williamson is exonerated. You could say, look, he's been libelled by the Prime Minister. So is sorry going to be enough? Not only has he been libelled as a leaker, somebody who potentially has endangered national security... His career is basically in ruins. He can't really recover from that, even if he's blameless. Very difficult to recover, yes. But the question of people libelling each other in Cabinet, this seems to go on all the time now. I mean, it is such a dysfunctional Cabinet. And people are calling each other names. Yeah, but she disseminated the libel in a letter. Well, (laughs) yes. I mean, technically, if he is exonerated and she actually said in a letter that he did it, it would have to go to a court of law 
Uh, he would have to sue for libel. That then, would be interesting. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I think she just doesn't want all the kerfuffle this would cause. That's why she just wants to turn over, move on, and say, let's stop it now. Uh, I don't think it's going to be possible. But I can see why, in the middle of these endless Brexit negotiations, she doesn't want that distraction. Absolutely. But I'm afraid, by the, by the sounds of it, it looks as if this distraction is going to follow her around into all today of all days as well. We've got the local government's elections in Britain. Let's move on now to Kazakhstan, because over there, police arrested around 80 people on Wednesday in a rare public protest against the upcoming election. Now, demonstrators marched in Almaty, Kazakhstan's largest city, and in the newly renamed capital of Nursultan against what they claim is a lack of choice in the June election to replace President Nursultan Nazarbayev. In March, the president stunned the country when he unexpectedly resigned. However, the protesters claim the ruling party's nominee, Kasim Jomat Tokayev, will mean more authoritarian rule, and they're calling for an election boycott. So, Benno, let's put this into context. I mean, how rare are protests like this? Well, that's the thing. We heard about eight arrests and several hundred people protesting in these two large cities, as you mentioned, but also in other smaller cities across the country, which doesn't sound like much. We're talking about Kazakhstan, the ninth largest country in the world, although only with 18 million people. So a few hundred people protesting doesn't sound like much. But then again, those numbers are actually the highest almost in decades in these cities, because whatever you want to label it, it's certainly a very authoritarian regime and has been since its independence, when basically Nursultan Nazarbayev, as head of the Communist Party at the time in Kazakhstan, took over power and has been president since. And he surprised everyone with this move in March. And as always, when some kind of transition is initiated, this raises hopes even with a population that has never witnessed democratic rule or even anything close to real elections in their history. So it will be very crucial to see how these elections, I'm air quoting here, unfortunately you can't see that, um, how these elections will take place. But it's already very clear, both from the Kazakhstani system, as well as from neighbouring countries, that this will not be a real choice. Protesters are absolutely right. There's no alternative in the end to the official candidates. Uh, The elections are a farce and any kind of opposition candidate with real chances at at power will not be allowed to participate. Mm, so, So pretty much business as usual in terms of government. But Michael, whenever we look at protests of this nature, you, you, you can't just skim over the surface. You have to look at who's taking part. Are we talking about an anger that is specifically felt by younger people, millennials, a tech-savvy generation? Or does this irritation encompass all the generations? Well, it is largely younger people because they're the ones who've not known any other system uh, and they're the ones who are fed up. And I have to say, it's not just a phenomenon confined to Kazakhstan. Where you have uh, protests about authoritarian rule, it is usually the younger people. And the key thing about this protest is right next door, Russia, they're looking very carefully at what's happening because the Kazakh example is one possibility for Putin himself. How should he leave office? He is due to leave office. He probably is unlikely to be able to rig the constitution so he can change it yet again for himself. But the idea of leaving office and with a nominated successor to protect his own position, and therefore his legacy will not be undermined, 
They've been looking very carefully at how it's working in Kazakhstan, uh, but they are also seeing a lot of dissatisfaction, I won't say open protest yet, but dissatisfaction growing among a younger generation. Mm. And we can see where this can lead. I mean, you take a much more blatant example in Sudan, where it led to street revolts, uprisings, and a youth that is absolutely not going to put up with what they see as a rigged system being put in place by the military now. Mm. And, and, that, and that leads to the question as, as well, Ben, about how well organised are these, these, these protests? Because whenever we see this, this pushback against authority, the internet is key to it. And of course, the younger people, they tend to be a lot more tech savvy than their parents or, or indeed grandparents. So is, that, is the internet a key, a key force in terms of getting people together and also crowdfunding? Well, at this stage, I don't think the internet uh, is that important yet to rally a huge number of people there. Um, otherwise, protests may may have increased, but we haven't really seen any kind of mass protest as mm. we've seen so in Ukraine. So it's still in the early stages, though. It's very much in the early stages. And that leads to a question as well about how organised these people actually are. And I would very much doubt that they're organised at all, apart from maybe a few messages on social media as in, hey, will you join? Yes, sure, I'll join. But there's no like overarching message. So I think, and from the video footage that we have, we saw mostly young people but also older generations children and so on i think they took to the streets for for a range of motives as well not just to support some specific opposition candidate they have in mind because those just don't exist there's no organized opposition there's never been but they they at the same time protest corruption they want elections at the local level they want their voice to be heard somewhat but there's no outlet for that there's no real elections that have ever taken place and there has never been any way for them to to voice their opinions and their frustration and hence it will be very interesting to see in the coming weeks whether they are able to galvanize some stronger support but to be fair I'm not too optimistic that this will lead to any kind of huge protest that will really change the political scenery. I think, as we've said before, this will very much continue as business as usual, but it will be important for neighbouring countries and particularly for Russia to watch, most certainly. So so business as usual, Michael, but also as well, whenever there have been rumblings of discord in the past, the government has made some concessions, very, very small, it has to be stressed within Mm. the framework of authoritarianism, but it's been enough to calm things down a bit. So can we see a perpetuation of of that strategy? Possibly. uh, They are helped by having an economy that's doing reasonably well and over the past 20 years or so has done remarkably well compared to some of their other uh, Central Asian neighbours. So there is some manoeuvre room for uh, Nur Sultan Azabayev at the moment before he leaves office and for those thinking of taking over, whether they can make uh, concessions in terms of standards of living, or I think that would be the more obvious point rather than political concessions, which is clearly not what they'd like to make because you never quite know where you can stop with that. But something to sort of promise young people, yes, more opportunity, more initiatives for young people to have a say in in whatever it might be. Uh, And they have the money to, to be flexible. Mm. Okay, of course, whether they will be is is another thing altogether. But interestingly enough, it's not just movement that's going on at the very top of the government structure. It's what's happening slightly below that, because we know that the president's elder daughter, she is the speaker in parliament. She's taken over from the the man who who held that role for some time and who's now been touted as the successor. Do you think, Benno, that ultimately the goal is to 
eventually get her to take the presidency, that she's being blooded, if you like, in this key role as Speaker? Well, some people say so, but Nursultan Nazarbayev himself has always said at several occasions that he does not want to create a dynasty. Whether we can take this at face value, I'm not so sure. Thing is, I mean, his daughter, albeit she is now the, the Speaker of the Senate, so she would be successor to Tokayev, the interim president, in case he died, for example. Um, but I don't think that a country like Kazakhstan, who is quite patriarchal, it's moderately Muslim, ha- would have an easy time accepting a woman, let alone the daughter of the previous president, who is still behind the curtains, obviously, still having all the real power in his hands, that they would accept that. So currently it looks like Tokayev, who was, who was nominated as successor, may actually make the race. And maybe this interim period, because he is quite old himself, mm. may be used for other successors to put themselves in place to then have a full transition um, of power to them. Okay, then let's close down that subject because you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Ben Ozog and Michael Binion. Plenty to come up because next it is the US Attorney General. He says he will not appear before the House of Representatives over his handling of the Mueller report into allegations of collusion between Russia and President Trump. What's the secret to a happy life? Join us in June in Madrid for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life Conference to find out. We'll be asking the important questions and proffering a few unexpected answers on everything from the future of our cities to deft design, from hospitality to the finer things in life. You'll find counsel from the food players laying the table for success, the entrepreneurs we're backing, and plenty of lessons, scoops and insights gleaned in the Spanish capital and beyond. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference takes place in Madrid from the 27th to the 29th of June. And there's more good news if you're a Monocle subscriber. You get a 10% discount. Head to conference.monocle.com now and watch the film from last year's event and buy your ticket for this year's edition. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. Still with me are Michael Binion and Beno Zog. Now, the US Attorney General William Barr is on course for a major collision with Democrats in the powerful House of Representatives Judiciary Committee. They want him to answer questions over his handling of Robert Mueller's report into allegations that Donald Trump colluded with Russia in the 2016 presidential election. Well, critics claim Mr Barr's four-page summary of the report deliberately put a positive spin on the president's behaviour. That suspicion was further stoked by Robert Mueller himself, who in a letter to Mr Barr rebuked the Attorney General's summary for court causing, quote, public confusion because it, quote, did not fully capture the context, nature and substance of this office's work and conclusions. Now, Michael, uh, he was supposed to appear today before this committee and he has kept away. So he stuck to his gun on that point. But then you have to ask yourself, what is the point in going ahead with uh, this meeting or of the committee if the star witness isn't there? Is it just empty symbolism? Well, it's certainly symbolism, and it certainly will be a demonstration that they do want to find what the real full report says. They're not going to be fobbed off. They're not going to accept a uh, a sanitised version, and they're not going to accept what they see as a politicised use of the Attorney General's office. Uh, Hillary Clinton has weighed in quite heavily already and said he's behaving like the defence counsel for the president rather than as the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, Well, uh, she would say that, wouldn't she? But equally, he would behave like that, wouldn't he? Uh, uh, And I think that's where it is. The fact is, he was willing to appear before a committee of the Senate, which has Mm. a Republican majority 
majority, but not where the Democrats hold power, which is in the House of Representatives. Yeah, because he, he's... And, and let's talk about that, about that appearance at the Senate Judiciary Committee. I mean, how do you think he fared? Because, yes, he would have been cross-examined very, very gently by the Republicans. But, uh, Ben, do you think that, um, on the whole, he acquitted himself fairly well or did he still stumble in a few places? Well, obviously, if you have such a stance to defend all, all these allegations and defend the presidents against all these allegations, you will have to stumble every so often. But given it was a several-hour hearing with all kinds of questions um, shooted at him, I think he, did, he overall did fairly well. But probably he misstated the truth somewhat. And then it's always a bit easier if you can bend the truth. So he still um, dug himself into a hole, even though he was performing in front of a sympathetic audience. Well, there must have been a reason that he hasn't shown up today, because obviously he expected more critical questions. There was a the the setup of the meeting of the hearing was supposed to be that not only members of Congress but also lawyers themselves can ask questions at him. So those would have been very much to the point, very critical, and he would have run into difficulties answering that. So that sh- sure explains to some extent this manoeuvre today. Mm. Another manoeuvre, of course, at the Democrats' disposal, Michael, is the possibility of Robert Moon himself testifying. Now, that would make for some mouth-watering viewing, wouldn't it? It would. Whether he'll do that is open to question. I mean, he's played a very, very careful game. He is always in danger throughout the investigation of being sacked halfway through it. He managed to complete the report without getting sacked. Uh, He's presented it in what looks like a carefully balanced way so that he can't be accused of partisanship or of acting as a weapon for the Democrats. And I think he would be quite reluctant now to be brought in as the sign of star witness. Could he be subpoenaed? He could be, I suppose, yes. Um, I'm not quite sure the legality of how the congressional subpoenas work and whether somebody who is a special counsel can be subpoenaed by Congress. I mean, that would have to be a constitutional lawyer in the United States who, who would answer mm. that one. But if he, if he can be subpoenaed, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of Democrats who would like to do so. Uh, and quite a few Democrats want to go further. They now want to launch a full impeachment hearing against Mr. Trump. Others counsel a slightly more um, cautious approach because they fear that any of these things can quickly be exploited by Trump to look as though he is being the subject of what he often says, mm, the a witch, witch hunt. hunt. Yeah. And that doesn't help the Democrats. And, and that's the point, isn't it, Benno, that however they play this, they've got to be very, very careful because if they do go down this, this uh, impeachment road, it could effectively... Um, undermine um, the usefulness of of what they've achieved so far in terms of William Barr dodging issues and uh, the possibility that that, um, Muller himself may may choose to come forward. Precisely. This is really another episode in this political comedy or political tragedy or whatever you want to call it, that Democrats still haven't given up on this idea to impeach Trump eventually. And they haven't even uh, reconciled with the fact that he was elected in the first place. But as you said, Julia, this is not the way they will win voters back that they have lost in the 2016 elections. They should rather focus instead of this campaigning and probably helping Trump rally his supporters behind him. They should rather focus on actual policies and have that as the content of that campaign. And let's face it, campaigning has already started. We had the what, 21st, 22nd candidate for the Democratic nominee already uh, coming forward. So election 
campaigning is already going on, but this will really not serve them because impeachment, let's face it, will not be an option. After all these scandals that we've seen, Trump is still in place, his supporters are still behind him, and if they support this allegation of witch hunt, then they don't serve anyone, and then we may have another Trump presidency at hand. <laughs> OK, then, let's move on now to our final subject because all eyes will be on Brussels this weekend to see which lucky team will take gold in the coveted European Tram Driver Championship. Last year, a Swedish team scooped the honours after narrowly beating their German rivals in a nail-biting finish. Drivers will face six tests, including guiding their vehicles between sets of traffic cones without touching them and knocking down six large bowling pins by skillfully ramming a large ball in their direction. Which begs the question, Michael, I mean, what's the point? Surely there are better ways of actually passing time if you're a tram driver. (laughs) Well, the thing that I simply can't understand is how can you manoeuvre a tram to knock over a ball? Trams run on fixed metal rails. Ah, good point. You can't actually steer it a bit to the left or a bit to the right. You can either go faster or slower. You can stop suddenly and knock everyone over inside, which is a bit of a laugh, but that is not... I mean, beyond that, there's not much room for manoeuvre. In fact, one hopes if the tram is properly run, there's no room for manoeuvre at all. It runs on tram lines, and hence the expression, tram lines. Uh, So I don't really understand how this competition is going to work. Yeah, I I don't understand it either, but I'm I'm, I'm sure it will work because it's happened before. But I mean, Brenda, when you you hear about these these things, you know, the versatility of a tram, does it change the way that you you view trams? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds fantastic. Well, I first read that it's about one of the disciplines is tram bowling, and I thought, brilliant, bowling on a tram. How exciting will that be? But then it's really just a tram bumping into a giant ball and depending on the speed this will determine the outcome the most boring bowling game ever well i myself have a i'm a daily user of tram i run the line 15 in zurich from my home to my workplace and it's always announced as the shortest but most scenic route in zurich so i quite enjoy that but to be honest, if there's really a competition by tram drivers, it should really be about the wit uh, that they may show at these several occasions when somebody's blocking the doors and so on, and they really <laughs> shout through the speaker. Right. This is the real competition, and not just Sweden would win there. Right. Well, I guess that neither of you will be going to Brussels. I can honestly say that I won't be there either. But look, that brings us to the end of today's show. Michael Binion and Ben Ozog, thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next. And at 1900 hours, it is The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye.